A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome to episode three of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we speak about the patriarchs of the Old Testament, we usually present them in a triad like that. Recall, for example, Jesus' stern reproof of the Sadducees, the ones who say there is no resurrection from the dead in the New Testament. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Often, when we consider the patriarchs, we cluster them together like this as the patriarchs, perhaps even imagining that their stories are interchangeable. And why not? After all, the biblical teaching is against exceptionalism, be it of families, tribes, nations, or individuals. Moreover, as we hear in Proverbs, there is nothing new under the sun. However, if we only think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a triad of patriarchs, we miss hearing the unique function of each of their stories. Scripture, after all, is not interested in simply filling up pages in a book or repetition for its own sake, or even to convey information. Its purpose, rather, is to teach, and it does that in words, stories, poetry, songs, genealogies, narratives, and parables. What we encounter in the patriarchal stories of Genesis are the narratives largely about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As similar as these stories are, and to be sure there is much overlap and repetition, each one has a unique function and role in conveying the scriptural story and thus the teaching as a whole. During my 18 years as a priest in the Orthodox Church, I have presided over many weddings. Recently, I was surprised hearing myself say the long prayer at the crowning service in which we ask for a series of blessings on the couple and reference some biblical characters. Bless them, O Lord our God, as thou didst bless Abraham and Sarah. Bless them, O Lord our God, as thou didst bless Isaac and Rebekah. Bless them, O Lord our God, as thou didst bless Joachim and Anna. And at that moment, I thought to myself, wait a minute, didn't we just skip over Jacob? Maybe it's habit, or maybe it's the so-called Mandela effect, that phenomenon in which we erroneously remember even small details of the past. But I would have sworn the crowning prayer mentioned the patriarchs in the classic triad formula, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, along with their wives. But here it was, in black and white before me, in the prayer at the crowning. It goes from Abraham, which of course we fully expect, to Isaac, and then on to mention other saintly couples in the canon, but oddly no mention of Jacob Israel. What could be going on here? Jacob is no minor biblical character. 
His descendants, after all, are known collectively by his name, Israel, the new name given to him by God in the story. So why then, in the crowning prayer of the marriage service of the Orthodox Church, does he get snubbed? I'll say right off that I don't have a definite answer for why Jacob is missing in that prayer. But the thing worth noting here is that in the Bible, each of the characters has a unique role to play in the narrative. Despite the similarities between them, and despite the repetition of similar events and even of names, Jacob and Isaac are not interchangeable. Each of them has a value of his own. Perhaps the question to ask is not, what's the problem with Jacob? But rather, is there something unique about Isaac? If we compare the stories in Genesis of the marriages, Isaac to Rebekah in chapter 24, and Jacob to Leah and Rachel in chapter 29, we hear significant differences. First of all, looking at the Jacob cycle, in Genesis 28, we learn that Jacob leaves Canaan and goes to Padan Aram. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there, of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. But it's not the case of Jacob leaving home simply to get married. Earlier, at the end of chapter 27, we hear that the reason Jacob is leaving is that his brother Esau is threatening to kill him. His mother Rebekah tells him, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. Jacob is fleeing Canaan to escape the wrath of his brother, who is angry with him for stealing his blessing from their father, Isaac. Jacob had accomplished that feat using deceit and guile at the prompting of and with the full cooperation of their mother, Rebekah. And now, in order to spare his life, he has to leave home. If it were a Hollywood movie, we might say that Jacob is on the lamb. At the beginning of chapter 9, Jacob arrives at Laban, and there he meets Rachel. When he sees her, he is smitten with her, and then... To put it in modern terms, he makes his move to get the girl. What Jacob does to impress her is extraordinary. Let's hear what the text says. Now while he was still speaking with them, that is the herdsmen of Laban, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Why this is extraordinary is that a few verses earlier, Jacob had suggested to Laban's herdmen that they water the sheep, but he is told by them, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. The mention of the size of the stone covering the mouth of the well indicates removing it and replacing it multiple times 
was a cumbersome task. Hence the practicality of waiting till all the flocks were gathered to water all the sheep at once. But as soon as Jacob sees Rachel, in fact, the text says that while he, Jacob, was still speaking with the men, Rachel comes, and then Jacob himself rolls the stone away from the mouth of the well and waters the sheep of Laban, Rachel's father. Thus, Jacob accomplishes all by himself what the text had told us via the words of Laban's herdsmen was impractical for several men to pull off. And he did it because he was smitten with Rachel, who was, as we shall hear in just a few verses, beautiful in form and appearance. Again, if this were Hollywood, Jacob would be portrayed as heroic, chivalrous, macho. But this is scripture. What Jacob did was exert much effort into getting what he was attracted to and wanted. There's a striking similarity that comes through, even in the English, between the way Rachel is described Compare the comment that she was beautiful in form and appearance to the way the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden is described in the eyes of Eve after she had engaged in dialogue with the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. It says there that Eve saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. Indeed, in chapter 3, the serpent who is described as the most cunning of the living beings formed by the Lord God, uses that cunning and guile to deceive the woman. And here, in chapter 29, Jacob himself is fooled, and by his uncle, his future father-in-law. Jacob agrees to stay with Laban and work for him for seven years, the end of which he would get to marry Rachel. But Laban gives him Leah, his older daughter, instead. Then Jacob has to agree to another seven years if he wants Rachel too. That's 14 years of servitude brought on by Laban. Ironically, Laban mistreats Jacob with deceit and guile, the same way Jacob himself, with his mother Rebekah as accomplice, had behaved toward Esau and their father Isaac. Call it poetic justice if you like, but the harsh treatment of Jacob and the imposed servitude on him by Laban anticipates literarily the captivity and slavery that his descendants, the Israelites, would be forced to endure in Egypt in Exodus, the second book of the Pentateuch. In contrast to the great effort exerted by Jacob, look at the narrative of the marriage of Isaac as recorded in chapter 24 of Genesis. Beginning at verse 2, we hear, So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. The injunction not to take Isaac back to the place where Abraham was born is repeated two more times in verses 6 and 8. This repetition is striking. Going back to where he came from after obediently following the Lord's command to go to the land that he will show him is not an option for Abraham, here expressed through the movement, or lack thereof, of Isaac, the son of the Lord's promise to him. Regardless even of an unwillingness on the part of the woman, 
Abraham's servant is told in no uncertain terms that Isaac is to remain where he is. Let's hear verses 8 and 9. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. We then hear that the servant goes as he is directed, and on his way he resolves to submit to the events that will unfold according to the will of God. Again, let's hear what the text says, beginning at verse 12. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink, let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. The author then tells us that before he had finished speaking, Rebecca appears. Note the same literary device used in chapter 29 before Jacob sees Rachel for the first time. In both instances, we have a dialogue interrupted by a significant event in the narrative. And in both, that event is the sudden appearance of the bride. It's powerful in that it depicts how Abraham's servant had only just resolved to submit to the will of the Lord when those actual events appointed by the Lord already began to unfold. Chapter 4 makes use of excessive repetition. We first hear the prayer of Abraham's servant to the Lord in which the scenario of how he will know the young woman is intended for Isaac is given with precise detail in verses 13 and 14. Then the author repeats the same thing in telling us in verses 16 through 19 that those events actually transpired. And if that were not enough, from verses 34 to 49, a very long section, we hear the complete story of the mission of Abraham's servant as told to Rebekah's father and brother, the reason he came to Nahor in Mesopotamia, and a third repetition of the scenario of how he would identify the young woman whom Isaac was to marry, along with an additional telling that it indeed took place so. Oof, repetition ad nauseum, one might say, if the story weren't so beautiful, and if we didn't know that repetition serves a teaching function in scripture. In the narrative, after the servant finishes telling his business, he asks Rebecca's father and brother what they will do, whether or not they will agree to give Rebecca to marry Isaac. Here, verse 48. And I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord, and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, Tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And their response is what can truly be called a mic drop moment in the scriptural story. Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either good or bad. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go. 
and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. The word translated thing here is dabar, which significantly in Hebrew refers to something uttered or spoken by God, a word. If we only needed one passage to show how Isaac functions as a unique character in the story, this one would suffice. In arranging for his marriage, there is no disputing, no discussing, no analyzing, no interpreting, no looking into the matter. There is nothing except hearing the dabar, the word or command of God, and the necessity of submitting to it, period. Isaac's marriage to Rebekah is arranged amazingly without any input or effort on his part. Smooth guy, that Isaac. He stays at home and still gets the girl. Compared to the great effort exerted by Jacob in his marriages to Rachel and Leah, and which both leads to a life of servitude for Jacob and prefigures that of his descendants. Perhaps it's fitting, then, that in the crowning service of the Orthodox Church, we pray for the blessings of Isaac and Rebekah and not that of Jacob with Rachel and Leah on a couple when they approach for marriage. Isaac is unique in the biblical story, something Paul affirms in Galatians 4 when he says, We, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Isaac, we should recall, is the son the Lord gave to Abraham as a promise. In chapter 12 of Genesis, we hear that Abram, as he is called at that point, believes that promise. He trusts God and is accounted by God as righteous. But following that verdict in chapter 16, his trust is tested. Abram's wife, Sarai, who is well beyond childbearing years, urges him to force God to make good on his promise by telling him to go into her maid so he can have a child. And we hear in verse 2, Thus Abram obeyed the voice of his wife Sarai. The wording here is strikingly similar to what we heard in chapter 3 regarding Adam's disobedience to the command of the Lord. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That's verse 17. Abraham's trust in God is tested again and more forcefully in chapter 22, when God tells him to offer Isaac as an offering to him. And Abraham proceeds to do it remarkably without hesitation, without even raising a question. We sometimes like to speak of this as Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, but hearing the text exactly as it's written, this is not so. Abraham does not offer Isaac as a sacrifice, and certainly Isaac himself does not offer anything. He is completely oblivious to God's plan to test Abraham's faith. Here verses 7 and 8. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. God will provide. That's the totality of what anyone needs to hear. 
No, Abraham doesn't offer Isaac. He doesn't do anything other than obey the voice of the Lord. And that, it turns out, is everything. In verse 18, God tells Abraham, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I'm fond of reminding couples, especially when one of them is of a non-Orthodox background, that the marriage service in the Orthodox Church is unlike anything they've seen portrayed on television or in reality. They don't have vows to write. In fact, there's nothing for them to say other than to affirm or deny the one question posed to them at the outset. Have you come to this of your own free will? And once each of them has answered, I have, from that point on, everything in the service is provided for them and on their behalf. There is literally nothing for them to do except, like Isaac in the biblical story, be the blissful recipients of grace. Incidentally, the Orthodox marriage service does include a prayer later at the removal of the crowns that mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and significantly, it emphasizes the necessity of walking in obedience. Be thou exalted, O bridegroom, like unto Abraham, and be thou blessed like unto Isaac, and do thou multiply like unto Jacob, walking in peace and keeping the commandments of God in righteousness. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of A Light to the Nations, and I look forward to meeting again. Thank you for listening.